Hi, and welcome to Sip, Sip, Hooray, the podcast for people who love wine, but not all the snobbery that can go with it. We try to strike the right note, bringing you fun conversations with interesting people in the world of wine. And today's podcast is particularly harmonious because we're talking with a woman winemaker who set out to be a concert musician and wound up making masterpieces in wine bottles. She's been touted as a woman winemaker to watch, and we are excited to chat with her. Of course, we are the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orlin, and we are super excited to have our guest today, Shalini Sekar. She's a Jersey girl, and we're going to find out how she ended up in the wine country of the Santa Cruz Mountains at Neely Wines. She's got a storied career already at a young age, working with wineries you've heard of. And she also has her own label, Otavino, which has a particular musical resonance that we'll learn about. So, Shalini, we are so excited to be here. We are with you in the middle of Spring Ridge Vineyards. Gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Beautiful day in Portola Valley. The vineyard is surrounded by redwoods and oak trees. I just saw a huge huge bird flying by. (laughs) So I'm going to hawk. So how does a Jersey girl end up in this beautiful setting? Also someone who started down the musical path for a career. And how did you end up in wine? A bit of, I don't know, can I quote (laughs) a happy accident? Uh, No, (laughs) Um, I started out studying music, as you said, um, music education specifically. And I thought I would be a teacher and um, at some point realized I was getting good at my instrument and maybe I'd be interested in performing. And so I went and got a performance degree, thought I would play in a symphony one day uh, and hopefully teach uh, junior college, college. So uh, that kind of was my path. And I, I was already taking some auditions and I was teaching music theory at a junior college. And then we moved to California for my husband's job. And I was very excited to do that. I was ready to leave um, the area that we grew up and see more of the world. Uh, But I didn't realize at the time that it was going to sort of derail my teaching career. So school systems, uh, both K through 12 and uh, college level, are very different here than they are on the East Coast. And so I found myself looking to figure out how to navigate that. Uh, So I continued to audition and in the meantime, I loved wine, and I had already been tasting on the East Coast, but didn't know a lot about California wine. So my husband would take me tasting on Fridays, and I can say that now. with probably can't get him in trouble since he doesn't work for that company anymore. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We won't tell. Nobody's, nobody's going to tell who's yeah, listening to this. Yeah, so we, we used to kind of sneak out on Fridays and go up to Napa, and, you know, I just thought, you're born into this, you know, that... Being Indian, American, you know, the idea of even wine culture or having vineyard land or kind of having that as part of my upbringing didn't, didn't, didn't occur to me. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, you know, it's this p- movie picture of, you know, this is, you're born into it and it's generations of your family. I don't know. I had a very old world perspective of this, of like something like Italy or France or something. Yeah, right. Mondavi-esque. Yeah, right. <laughs> generational, right? And so coming here and talking to people, I finally met one winemaker who happened to be pouring in a tasting room one day and he said, well, this is my wife's family that um, has the vineyard and the winery and I happen to be the winemaker, but you know, there's an entire web website with jobs, 
winejobs.com. Mm-hmm. And I went, that's the most obvious and ridiculous name. Isn't it? And on the way home, my husband was like, you should, you should get a tasting room job. You'd be great. And I said, well, what do I know? You know, I just mm-hmm. love wine. How's that? How's that anything? And he said, well, you'll meet people, you know, you're new to California. You'll meet people and I'm sure it'll be fun for you until you figure out what you're doing with teaching. And so I ended up applying for a job in a tasting room, which I ended up getting. And that snowballed. I became one of the managers of the tasting room. And after like two years of doing that and taking auditions, I was still flying to auditions in different places. Uh, I kind of went, I'm really interested in winemaking. But I really felt like I was like cheating on music, you know? <laughs> did you? Yeah. Because well, yeah. I, I used so to much pr- of your life into yeah, it. Yeah, I devoted so much of my life to it. And I, I used to actually bring my instrument to work. And I used mm-hmm. to go into the reserve tasting room and I would practice during my lunch break. Oh, that's so cool. I bet the wines were better because you were playing for them. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's some, there's some folks that actually play like different music to their different tanks. Right. And mm-hmm. I think it's, I think there's something to this. Um, but yeah, so I, I, uh, I really felt like I was interested in wine making and I wanted to check it out. And my husband said, work a harvest, figure it out, you know. But you were living, you weren't living in the Napa Valley or Sonoma no, County or any of we either. were living in San Francisco proper. Okay. And the tasting room that I got a job at was Rosenblum Cellars, which is in the East Bay, so urban winery. So I have right. my roots in urban winemaking, gotcha. you know, from, from day one. Um, and I was lucky. They they said, yeah, you can be an intern. We'll hire you. So I left my full-time nice job in the tasting room, and I went down to become a cellarette, and I loved it. I worked night shift and it was, you know, you keep crazy hours even on your days off and you just function like a vampire and, you know, every part of your body hurts from working these like ridiculously long shifts. But every part of that felt good to me, like all of the good parts of uh, music. You know, I taught music theory, I taught instrumental music. So all of the kind of how and why about music kind of translated to me into the how and why with like chemistry and winemaking, right? There's a sensory piece of the thing. Mm-hmm. The chemistry is supposed to underpin and explain why it's good, but it doesn't ex- really explain all of why it's good. It just, it gives you some uh, guiding points along the way. And so that's what music theory is too. Music theory is not like, oh, just write it this way and it will sound good. It's like, no, that could sound good, but maybe it's not going to be transformative, Right. That's like the missing human element. But that is the for me, that's the commonality between the two things. I was going to ask you what kind of similarities, if any, there were, Um, because, as you said, you put your whole young life into music. So that's really you were, you know, an an expert at that. So, you know, how did you transfer some of that knowledge into wine? Well, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm a little bit of a nerd. I like taking classes. So um I realized there were a couple paths forward, right? And I, I knew I was in for winemaking, and I also knew that it meant I was leaving music behind um, in, like, the formal sense of my career. And so, you know, I kind of, I think I lived with that little bit of that guilt for a few years, and I have no regrets now, but... Um, Did your family give you any guilt on no, that? No, they were really supportive. They just kind of, you know, they were already supportive. I mean, who, which... Indian immigrant parents let you go major in music, right? right. And what husband yeah. will marry you and then go pay for your master's degree like immediately? <laughs> they were all just like, are you sure you want to do this? You want to do this? Go do this. So were they familiar? Were they wine drinkers? Did they understand what the appeal of wine was to you? Not at all. My parents do not drink. It's just mm-hmm. very typical South Indian. Now, some people do for sure, but like mm-hmm. very typical like Hindu vegetarian, don't drink. Um, my mom gets it. I think she's like got this very analytical mind. Both of my parents are very creative. My dad 
my dad could literally build you a house. Like he's the Indian Bob Vila. <laughs> and, but like the guy can also like sew you curtains or whatever. My mom used to, my mom is just so, you know, crafty and amazing. She used to do tons of embroidery. She used to sew our clothes. She, she worked of course too. She has all these like random artistic talents, you know? Um, so I think, but my mom in particular really understood this analytical part of things. Like she went on a wine tour with me at some point and was like, Oh man, barrels aren't glued together. Like it blew her mind. She was like, wait a second, like describe to me how they make these things. Right. So she's had like a couple of sips of wine here and there, but I think, you know, she feels like that ship sailed at her age that she's like not going to become a regular drinker, but she'll, she'll taste and just try to understand. She grew up in a um, coffee plantation town, South India. We are very serious about our coffee. Yes, everybody thinks Indians I are all about tea. Know, I right. really didn't know that either. I would have said like chai like, or something. Chai is delicious, but like really South, like the part of South India where we're from is like very into coffee. Oh. It's a very serious thing. It's almost as serious as like the Viennese and such are oh, about their okay. coffee culture. Um, my mom grew up in one of these towns and I always tell her, I'm like, nobody likes coffee when they first drink it, right? Mm-hmm. It's like bitter and you have to have tons of milk and tons of sugar in it, right? Right. And so she said, yeah, they gave us like mostly milk with a little sugar and a little coffee. And then like the ratio changes. And I said, well, yeah, same with wine. You know, you got to start with kind of like the sweeter stuff. You got to start with like the lighter, like the white stuff that doesn't have the tannins. And, and then you kind of work your way in. So I think my mom understands it from that perspective, right? My that's dad a still is like. <laughs> you know, that's a really good way to talk to people about getting into wine. And because I know when I first had wine, I probably thought, Oh, it's so bitter. Totally. And I think even now we talk about so much like, oh, this wine's dry as though it's like superior, right? This like very Mm. kind of like wine geek speak as like almost like a judgment that if a wine has RS that like you're not sophisticated and you don't know. And it's like, well, for each taste, you know, each person has their own specific taste Mm -hmm. about wine. Mm -hmm. But for sure, wine's not dry, dry wine, tannic dry wine is not palatable if you don't have sort of a baseline, right? Right, absolutely. Right. And that whole judgment thing on, you know, what's what's good for one doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be good for another. And just like we all have different tastes in clothing and in art, and yeah. I think it's the same for our mouths. And there's so many great wines out there that are made to have some residual sugar. That's the style. I mean, just think of off-dry Riesling, um, and, you know, and you look at some of the California red blends that are super popular, they're off dry. They are. Mm-hmm. They are. And I think, you know, there's judgment in that. Um, mm-hmm. And I can understand, like, you know, if you've been tasting a lot, if you're in a certain kind of quality level scale, maybe you are looking to that and saying, like, mm, that's not for me. But that's how you got there. Like, I, I remember the first California wines I loved. Like, one of the reasons I ended up working at Rosenblum is... Those giant jammy zins, mm-hmm. some of which did have some residual sh- sugar. Thank you very For much. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're like, wow, because these were so different than the Italian and French wines that we kind of knew on the East Coast, which are more readily available. And they just like blew our socks off. Like, is that what I want to drink now, per se? No, it's got a place. Mm-hmm. And I can definitely understand why people, but that was like, that was like my gateway into California oh. wine. Mm-hmm. So, well. you know, far be it for me to judge anyone for wanting to drink that all day, every day. Well, one of my earliest Chardonnays was KJ Vintner's Reserve. And, you know, I thought it was just the best thing ever. And it's still great. And there's a place for it. Totally. You know, my taste in Chardonnay have changed. But, you know, I had a bottle the other day. And I'm like, okay, it's not as bad as I hear. You know, it's Yeah, there's, I was literally just talking to somebody about, we can, we'll not name it, but like Mm -hmm. a very famous Chardonnay that has Mm -hmm. a certain reputation. 
Mm-hmm. And I hadn't had it for years and a girlfriend poured it for me. And I was like, I'm not that snooty winemaker who's like going to turn away this glass. And so I drank it and I went great. Cause I haven't had this in 15 years. Right. And I get it. I get why it's giant. It's a giant wine in many, many ways. Right. But that's like accessibility and like how many cases are produced of that stuff. And with consistency and it makes people happy. So guess so what? Who are we to? So well, exactly. But I mean, it's not what I'm making know. here at Neely, but it is good to benchmark. It really is mm-hmm. like for your palate to really understand, mm-hmm. you know, if I want to talk about what California Chardonnay is, what it can be, like if I don't understand that whole scale, yeah, see the spectrum. I'm not it. really speaking about anything that really folks can relate to. That is such a great point. And I feel that in so many ways, the wine industry creates this atmosphere where people are just so intimidated and they don't they're afraid to say I like those wines and they think that they're supposed to like xyz it might not be to their taste and that's okay but I feel like more people need to give everybody permission that you like that great and people might love your wines and they or some may say it's not their taste but that's okay because there's we all get to have everybody. We all get to choose. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, let's get back to your um your path. And um from the cellar rat, you went to school? I did. I went back to Fresno State. They um both Fresno and Davis have a certificate program, but the Fresno State program is actually like the bachelor's major courses. So you're there for one to two years depending on what you've already completed before you get there. So it's kind of inorganic chemistry, um, biology, biochemistry, uh, microbiology, soil science, viticulture, enology, um, all that. So d- just depends on how, how much you've had done. But I spent a year down there and did a lot of that coursework. So well, your husband's in San Francisco. You're going, you went down to Fresno to oh, do this? Oh, no. My husband was in Philadelphia. Oh, that's even harder. Yeah, mm. he moved back. He went to business school. So it was his turn. I had already gone and gotten my master's degree, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was his turn for business school. And I was going to just work a harvest and join him in Philadelphia. And when I figured out I really wanted to make wine, he was like, well, that's only going to delay that career change by two years. So stay, we're going to figure it out. We'll just fly back and forth. And so we spent years five to seven of our marriage flying back and forth, eating through our entire savings. Mm. But it was so, Mm -hmm. it was so challenging one way. I'm not not recommending this to people. Um, <laughs> but it, it was wonderful in another way because we were high school sweethearts. We'd always been together. We had been accommodating to one another's careers and, and you know, educational paths. And for like, I think this was the one opportunity we both had to do exactly what we wanted to do. Um, and of course, you know, had to spend a lot of money to make sure that we were together in the whole process. But it was, it gave us freedom to, yeah. you know, for him to be very social through business school and really make some great connections with people mm-hmm. and not have to worry about running home to me because I'm upset because I've come back to Philadelphia and I don't have the job that I want to have and all that, you know, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So there are trade-offs and all of it, but yeah, there, there it was are. crazy. What a great <laughs> partnership that you Absolutely. guys were able to give that to one another at that time and, and that freedom to pursue your passions. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. He's a pretty, he's a pretty awesome guy. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. So after you got your winemaking degree, then what? Yeah, so so I spent the year down there in the post-bachelor's program, and I worked for two professors, which was really great, so I did some grad assistant stuff, and then came back, and honestly, it's the path that most people have to take. Regardless if you go to school, you just have to intern, 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 
I do feel like there's some different generational expectation now happening where people expect like, I've worked one harvest, I'm good, I've seen that. And you're like, mm, that's not how this business works, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to put in harvest after harvest. And it's a very apprenticed career. All the things I learned in school are very helpful um, to actual practical winemaking. And Fresno State did have a winery on campus where we made wine. And so that was a very hands-on program. But coming out and watching, you know, working for another winemaker and trying to synthesize that, that's that's the bigger picture of like how you really learn how to make wine and how to learn to make decisions, you know, when you're faced with different conditions each year, right? It's never the same thing. Um, so I interned uh, three, four years. Um, and the last of my internships was at William Selyam. Nice. And yeah, it was my first foray into Pinot Noir. I'm still friends with almost Oh, well, we're all tight. We still, we all still talk on Facebook, even the guys who are, you know, in Australia and mm -hmm. one of the gals who's in Germany and we all kind of keep in touch. But um, those of us who are still kind of local, we definitely support each other. I go visit my one buddy every time I'm up checking vineyards. Um, one of my buddies is our vineyard consultant here at Naley. Oh, right. that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And that's our connection is like, we were on this really awesome crew in 2010. Um, you know, I don't think people outside the industry realize how close and tight knit the inside the industry it is it is I mean you're basically during harvest I mean you know the whole joke about harvest widows and I guess harvest widowers mm -hmm. um you know you're with your entire vineyard winery crew seven days a week for you know two three months at a time you see them more than you see your family right so you better get along it's <laughs> <laughs> gonna be a really long harvest right. but it's like people have seen you kind of like struggle your most physical struggles and kind of like mentally struggle to you know because sometimes winemaking is monotonous or you know or it's just really physically difficult and I don't know there's a camaraderie that comes with that yeah it's a very special thing the the folks you end up working with yeah you're like you said it's the hours it's the the, the labor of it the passion in it yeah these people like these people are all trying they're all in it for the same reason you are right which you know if you make wine you're already weird period <laughs> It's true. It's like, it's so like specialized and niche. Like whenever I go out and talk to people, they're like, what do you do for a living? And then no matter how many times you ask them what they do, like they'll ask you over more questions, more questions about what you do. And you're like, well, of course I'm super interested in it. I do it for a living. Right. I like, this is my passion, but you're also like, oh, I'm so weird because I don't work in tech and I don't understand, you know, what is it that you do at your consulting company or, you know, kind of the more abstract careers. And I understand that you have a job and it's a worthwhile job and it powers half the world I live in and all the technology that I use. Right? <laughs> but I don't get it but at I all. But I don't get it at all. <laughs> so you just realize you're like, oh my gosh, like, okay, here's 10 more people who are all so weirdly specialized in this one thing. And we all speak this bizarre specialized wine language with each other. But I'm willing nice. to bet that people you meet like at a cocktail party would rather talk to you about winemaking than talk about, you know, um, computer chips or microprocessor. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the party, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's always fun. I mean, it's fun to share with people, you know, I mean, obviously I'm really passionate about this career and um, I don't know, there's all these pieces of it too that are always interesting and new and I think that's another part of this that's that's really exciting you know it, every vintage is different the chemistry always looks different the weather's always different um like just even thinking about down here you know like what are we doing from a sustainability perspective what are we doing for like 
what, you know, we want to farm organically. We're farming organically. Great. Like, well, what does that entail? And what impact does that have on our farm workers, right? Like, so our, our crew, like, what, like, they're going to spray something on the vines and fine, it's organic, but like, how is that for them to experience, right? And those are the conversations that Lucy and I have a lot. Um, and who's Lucy? Oh, sorry, Lucy Neely. Um, so Lucy Neely is the second of the three Neely children, and she is um, our operations manager. So she's kind of runs the whole property, um, in, including the winery, but also including the vineyards and including like the larger land management. So, so tell us about Neely. Um, so, I mean, we are here. Uh, it is a 230-acre parcel of land, of which only 16 Ish is devoted to um, the original plantings. Um, Chardonnay that was planted in the early 1980s uh, and Pinot Noir planted in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then we are sitting at the barn, um, which is kind of the newest structure on the property and uh, looking at our four acres of new vines. So we have two acres of Chardonnay down here, which right now we do as an unoaked Chardonnay. And then uh, the baby vines you're looking at right there are our Gruner Veltliner. And, and that's what we have in this class right now. Well, that's from a different vineyard. So I get different. to be oh, okay. a cool make two Gruner winemaker. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's right. Um, so yeah, this will be our first our first uh, crop that we get off of that block. That's exciting. And then that wild looking block over there is some rootstock because we haven't decided what to graft. But oh, okay. uh, the Neely family are really lovely people. Um have been stewarding this land since the mid-90s. They were already here in town. Um, Kirk Neely is a retired now a pediatric endocrinologist, and um, his wife Holly works on several foundations and um, at one point was, I think, the school board president down here. <laughs> the kids all grew up in town, and um, I think Lucy was like 10 or something when they moved here, so they really spent the majority of their lives on this land. And so... So for folks out of the area, Portola Valley is south of San Francisco about what? You drive it. So 45 minutes? Yeah. Eh, about 45 minutes from San Francisco. Yeah. And, and it's nestled in the Santa Cruz Mountains um, and just off of Highway 280. Well, not just off of. you got a, It's a bit of a hike, but, um, but you're willing to drive it. It's not too bad. It makes me, I mean, some silver lining of COVID. Graphics pretty good. Isn't that true? <laughs> We've commented on that. I mean, it's getting too. worse, but it's, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not quite. It's not bad. I actually during harvest zip back and forth between I make wine in San Francisco as well for some other folks. So I zip every day, seven days a week between here and there. So it's not terrible. Well, tell me about the appeal of having these separate projects that you're doing. So you have Neely, you have your own, which is Otavino. Otavino. And then you have another one or two that you're working on? I do. I do. So Waits Mast, who um, I've been working with the longest of um, all of my clients. So this is going to be our ninth year together. This will be my sixth year here on the property with Neely. Um, I have one more client, which sounds gross. I'm going to steal terms from my husband's uh, career, which is he's in stealth mode still. So we'll launch his brand <laughs> next year. Okay. <laughs> but we have a couple of vintages under our belt, ma- ma- mm-hmm. making some pretty high-end Pinot. Um and the appeal, you know, really is I'm a, so I am technically a consultant, which I'm not the Michelle Roland. Like I do not come in, taste your wine, tell you what to do and then leave. I actually physically will do all the winemaking. Um, perhaps one day, you know, maybe I'll have one or two people working with me. But for now, I mean, I'm literally foot stomping Pinot Noir and topping barrels in the off season myself. Um, 
you know, yesterday I was racking barrels to tank for bottling. So um, I'm kind of like full service winemaking. Um, and it's all for these kind of boutique or micro uh, boutique wineries. Um, so all like really great vineyard sources. Obviously here at Neely is entirely a state. So we grow all our own fruit and that's great. I get to be here in a vineyard walking, seeing vines, mm-hmm. kind of understanding what a growing season looks like, understanding what the drought looks like right now. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's really great because then I have a lot of uh, insight into what's happening in some of my other vineyards, and maybe it looks a little bit different in other regions that I work with. But when I go have conversations with growers, I have like a really um, informed uh, place to start from and ask questions and kind of see what they're doing in different spots. Um, and to be very honest, I'm a mother. So uh, a lot of balls in the air. You know, I'm making four different brands right now. But... It's also some flexibility because uh, there are times where, like, for instance, last week, my little guy got some bizarre virus. It was not COVID, thank goodness, but I had to pivot my entire week of what I was going to be doing. And, you know, I have to be racking, I have to be topping, I have to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, you know, if I want to come top barrels in the middle of the night, that's my prerogative. Like, my Mm -hmm. wine, the wine is taken care of. You know, harvest doesn't care, but outside of that, there's there's some great... uh, there's some great flexibility in being a consultant. Um, that being said, I'm, I love what I'm doing because I get to make wine from all over California. I'm in Sonoma Coast, Anderson Valley, Russian River, Santa Rita Hills, obviously here in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, yeah, it's kind of awesome. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it doesn't get as monotonous as it could if you were working the same vineyard over and over and doing the same exact wines over and over. Yeah, although I'm not, I'm not even sure that would end up being monotonous, mm. right? I mean, like, well, mm-hmm. we, when was the last time we had a normal vintage? Yeah, what is a normal happened? vintage? Yeah. yeah, there is no normal anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like a, it's like a moving target all the time mm-hmm. now. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping the idea, like, I'm also doing um, my WSAT diploma, which I've been doing for a really long time, but I'm going to finish in the next. Tell year me or what two. that is. Sorry. Oh, it's the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. Um, it's. Uh, kind of a, I'm going to not say nerdy, it's a more academic certification than say Court of Master Psalms because we're not, these folks are not on the floor of a restaurant at any point, right? I'm not selling wine. Um, It was developed for marketing and sales folks in the wine business to kind of improve their education. Um, Now I'm one of the winemakers. There's several who are kind of going down that path. So it's everything from enology and winemaking. There's six exams. What's in it for, I mean, what, what, what appeals to you about getting that information? I'm a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, okay, so. The quest, the thirst for knowledge? Yeah, yes, for sure. But I think where I was trying to go with that and link this into what we were talking about is that, you know, if I'm tasting wine from all over the world and I'm understanding soil differences or climactic factors or whatever things are really make each, like what makes Chablis Chablis, right? What makes Sancerre Sancerre? Well, what makes Santa Cruz Mountain Chardonnay Santa Cruz Mountain Chardonnay? That sort of contextual tasting and benchmarking. I mean, there's always these like, oh, your Pinot is so Burgundian. Like, is it really? You know, I think it's pretty California, to be honest with you. <laughs> Except that California has this grand range. And of course, I do think we can even talk about, you know, like, I think Santa Lucia Highlands is like this. I think Santa Cruz Mountains is like that. I think Anderson Valley is much cooler. It's like this. So... That sort of vocabulary and benchmarking across wines around the world, I think is really interesting and useful to me as a winemaker. And yeah, I mean, the, the rest of it's really interesting too. There's like wine business and kind of a, a different parts of understanding like running, running a business or understanding, you know, the entire wine industry 
microwineries, those little boutique things, were these tiny blips on the radar mm-hmm. versus like these large scale production uh, wineries throughout the world, right? And so just to even understand what is a market, what does any market look like and like what is a pandemic doing to that market? You know, supply chain is messed up on the winemaking side. Certainly it is on the sales side too. There has to be some understanding of that because our customers are participating in all of this. So uh, that to me is like the interesting the interesting stuff in there. Yeah, that's very cool. And so WSET has several levels. Um, there's an intermediate, advanced, yep. diploma level, which is kind of like getting a master's in wine, would you say, or you even harder? To, you're, you're supposed to have your diploma if you want to ever get the master of wine certification, if you want to even apply well, to then it. Then there's the master of wine, which is yeah, a very top very level. very top tier. Very but I, I was, um, I misspoke a little maybe, but um, diploma level, at least in my mind, equates to like a master's degree in another field. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. And yeah, then the, like and then the master of wine would be more like a doctorate. <laughs> <laughs> I think people with like a master in like actual like winemaking might mm-hmm. be like a little bit miffed. Because um, yeah. there is like a very academic... Mm-hmm. Um, chemistry, biology sort of aspect to viticulture and enology masters. But I think I get what you're saying. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a mm-hmm. very specialized program. And if you have that level of wine knowledge, then yeah, you've spent quite a few dollars and <laughs> quite a few uh, days, hours, years of your life devoted to to um, learning that information. So yeah, there's that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I marvel that you have time to do this while, you know, consulting winemaking for these different labels including your own and being a mother of two a five-year-old and a nine-year-old you said yeah my my little guys are not so little they're they're getting bigger so it's uh, <laughs> but still that's those are both demanding ages with lots going on you know activities and things like that it's um it's a lot as you said a lot of balls to juggle it's a lot of balls to juggle I'm I'm hoping like what you know some of the things like batonage or some of the other um, organizations that have popped up in this last year are helping support, you know, women and people of color. Yeah, and, and let's explain what bat- batonage is. Yeah. I mean, uh, so it, it um, started uh, three years ago um, by two women, Sarah Bray and um, Steve Estaciones. And it was a whole idea of supporting women in the wine business and addressing issues that are really specific to women um, in your advancement, in your career, or things that might be, um, obstacles and trying to understand, you know, how we can support one another um, and really push forward. Because as you know, there's not that many women winemakers. Um, they say there's more than there were 10 years ago, which is great. But we're still a very few that hold the head winemaker position versus the number of women that actually graduate from degree programs. And that doesn't even account for people who don't go through degree programs, right? Who right. actually have just as much science background or just as much experience um, from harvest to harvest as like their male counterparts do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, if, if I think about, you know, spaciousness around, you know, having kids and juggling stuff, the kids, well, you know, I'm always going to worry about them, right? They're going to be in college and I'm going to worry about them. They're going to be married. I'm going to worry about them. Um, and you know, there's only a certain part of your time and energy that, um, you have kind of the ability to learn and take on and, and grow personally. And unfortunately for women, those two things happen to overlap. Your career growth is exactly when you have kids, right. And when you're raising your kids and the same could be said true for my husband, my husband, you know, like all, all husbands, 
their expectation generationally is very different for men, I think, now, too. And they want that same space to participate in their kids' lives, but also do well in their careers. So I think there is a kind of general, generational change that's trying to happen. But I feel like at this point, you know, it's not happened quite yet. You know, uh, I've navigated it by being a consultant a little bit, but my plate's always going to be full. And these are the things I want to do. So let me try to be the best mom and the best winemaker and the best wife and the best friend and the craziest person on the face of the earth all simultaneously. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, you hit on, that's exactly it. It's just, you're just trying every day to do what you want to do and what you need to do. And I like your just practical approach about it. You're always going to be busy. You're always going to have demands on your time and they're always going to need you. And you're always going to want to do this and be also be a mother. So it is what it is. It's what it is. Exactly. And, you know, I, I wouldn't want to look back and be like, I wish I hadn't done my diploma. I wish I mm. hadn't, you know, been at work this much. I would, you know, all these different things. It's like, I'm really, I love being a mom, but I love being a winemaker. And I actually love being a nerd on the side. And so, you know, to me, it's just like, kind of go full on and there's days where I'm really being an awesome mom and there's days where I feel like I'm really really failing and there's days where I feel like I'm really rocking as a winemaker and there's days where I'm like oh my god I'm really so stressed out I'm like this is not like my best moment and it's always going to be like if you're succeeding at the one thing like it's coming from somewhere else and I think for me the recognition that it's the juggle like keeping it all in balance like I, I have forever been like, I'm going to do everything hundred percent. You can't, that's not, that's not possible. So maybe this is like the mid, like middle-aged woman thing that I've got going on right now, but I've got a little bit of Zen of like all the balls have to stay in the air. Their place is a little bit different yeah. on any given day. Right? <laughs> right. But like, just keep them all in the air. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. <laughs> so you are also mentoring women, women who are entering the wine business and working on the start of their careers. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, part of that uh, has been really motivated through Batonage um, and probably the fact that I am a middle-aged woman. So <laughs> I've got this, like, I don't, you know what I mean? You, yeah. you, you've got your head down for so long just trying to, like, claw at opportunity and claw at, like, advancement for yourself. And then at some point you look up and you're like, oh, oh, I, well, I, have, a, I have a business. Oh, like I have clients. Oh, I'm a grown up. I'm a grown up. I'm a gr- who knew I was a grown up. Um, and in that moment, you're like, wait a second. Like, so, okay, if I'm here, then that means it's time. It's time to start. You know, really trying to trying to lift some other people up. And it, the one thing I've always loved about winemaking is we have harvest, and we always have harvest interns, right? Mm-hmm. So that's for me is like that's my teaching element. That part that I gave up, like I never mm-hmm. gave up, right? Because you always have that every harvest you get to be like, let me show you how to like put the clamps on this way with one hand, and like you know turn turn them this way because when the next thing you do, the next six moves down the, the road you're going to have this thing over here and it's going to interfere with that. So like set it up this way. And so you teach people like great habits from the get go. Right. Mm-hmm. I love that stuff. I love it. And so the idea now that like there is that nudge that's happened these last three years, there's now a mentorship program through that. There's several other organizations that are trying to uplift some um, like people of color and um, black wine professionals. And um, actually just heard like two days ago about an organization that's trying to lift up LB- LGBTQ plus folks in the business, which is great. Absolutely, um, because you never hear about you that. You never hear folks, and you know that if it's a struggle as a woman and a seller, it absolutely is for that community as well. So I, like, now I feel like there's all this structural stuff that's kind of emerging, and so it's great to have that formality besides, you know, the 
um, the internships each year with Harvest. Uh, and I'm just trying to also reach out, you know, in terms of making myself available, uh, personally, just be like, I did a resume workshop for Batonage uh, a few days ago. I get resumes all the time for internships and they're kind of terrible these days. Um, and it's, it's like, well, why not volunteer myself up and say, Hey, like send me your stuff. And yeah. I, I you know, kind of just say like, what can I do for you? How can I be available to you? Do you want to come by the winery and do a tasting? Let's chat. I didn't know any women winemakers personally. Um, it didn't even occur to me to like want to want to ask someone and like to want mm-hmm. to find out that there were women. I was just like, I'm just going to do this job and I'll get recognized for my my merit alone. And that's sort of very naive. Well, I think as women, so many, and I can speak for myself, it's hard to ask for help. Yeah, we get shy, I think, and think that we're not supposed to. We're not supposed to. Yeah. If we're in mm-hmm. the know, we should know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We should know what we Which is what we don't know. It's <laughs> insane. How would you? How would you? You know, and I sometimes I look and I I see male counterparts, and they're more willing to ask questions, or they're more willing to be like, "I don't know that. Tell me more about that." Mm-hmm. Um, I actually Lucy Neely is just the most gracious about that sort of thing. She really should be like, "I don't, I don't. Okay, hang on, I don't know the baseline for that." just take it back for me and explain that to me. Mm -hmm. That sort of humility of I am absolutely 100% interested in what you're saying. I am capable of understanding what you are saying. I just don't happen to know it yet. Yeah. Back it up a little bit. Back it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Gosh, like that was not, you know, I asked a million questions growing up and it was very, you know, kind of academically oriented and all that. But, um, that sort of embarrassment that comes from not knowing and you're right. It, it quiets women. It definitely quiets people of color. Like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of multiple factors of not wanting to show, you know, you may not be the expert on everything. Right. And I think I'm glad so much of that is starting to change yeah. and that avenues are opening up. I, I noticed on Instagram, you, some of your hashtags on a couple of photographs I loved, you had hashtag women winemakers, brown winemakers, winemaker mom, who needs to sleep anyway, running around all day, Desi American, America the Beautiful, and let's get to work. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wow, there's a lot that you care about. Like, you are speaking to a lot of different issues. And, um, oh, and also BIPOC. You included that one, hashtag BIPOC. And I thought, yay, good for you. And um, I love that you... Uh, you represent a an era of change in in the industry, and I think that that's terrific. Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing um, to identify. You know, like to like have a term that's the era identifier. Like, I'm a woman winemaker, and I know a lot of women get like really mad about that. Right. It's like, well, I'm just a winemaker yeah. who mm-hmm. happens to be a woman, and I I 100 get that. At the same time, it's like we have to draw attention to the fact that some of us are finally in positions where you know we have power. Um, or like for me to say like I'm Desi American, right? Or like Indian American. Did I say I said Desi? No, it's like Desi Arnaz. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's uh, Desi just means countryman. Okay. So you know it's kind of like a intern internal Indian term, but you know, is that all of who I am? No. Is it part of who I am? Yes. Does what that look like? What what it looks like for me? Does it look different than what it looks like for somebody else who's also born here of Indian descent? Yeah, it totally does. Even if we're within the same subset community of you know where our parents were from in India all that looks different so Mm -hmm. all these different terms for me are terms that um are pieces of who I am but the end of the day I'm just sort of like weird Shalini who's like a giant (laughs) nerd and like you know just kind of moves through my day doing my thing the best I can do it right so I yeah I I, the the hashtags are hopefully useful for 
for those of us trying to find each other. Mm-hmm. Yes, sure, because point. especially for people of color in the industry and people of Asian descent, you know, it's not very common. And I hope that with folks like you putting yourself out there, it you are you're somebody that another person can say that's somebody who looks like me and if she can do it maybe I can do it too totally mm-hmm. totally because if you don't have your family you know that whole thing mm-hmm. that I was saying about you know it's, like, it's not generational like if your family doesn't drink <laughs> doesn't have wine culture isn't part of your like food your culinary experience growing up if you don't have any of that then mm-hmm. when when it something speaks to you a different culture speaks to you wine speaks to you and you don't have some that that background already. Well, we, at least if you can look out there and be like, somebody is willing to talk to me. Somebody is willing to kind of share with me. Um, if that person happens to be the same background, even better, you know, because maybe they understand some other facet of me too. Um, I don't know. That's very powerful to me, right? Just be able to kind of have these different ways that make it more encouraging for people to work mm-hmm. to to reach out and try to try to connect. Different connectors, yeah. yeah. Have you done a lot of uh, Indian food pairing with your wine? No, I'm the worst. Um, <laughs> I so a um, my dad is an amazing cook. Is he? Yeah, he's like an amazing cook. My mom's a great cook too, but my dad like is passionate about cooking, right? And so, uh, so I basically never cook Indian food. I just eat my dad's food. Uh, it, it's laborious. It's like super laborious, right? And so I've kind of been like, okay, I have to learn some of this stuff, Dad. Write it down for me. At the end of the day, we're South Indian. Our food spicy. That's hard with wine, mm-hmm. you know. Not impossible, but it can be hard. Uh, I've had oh the best pairing I've had actually. So South Indian, we do a lot of like fried treats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, things that are made from like chickpea flour and like chili pepper, or, like sesame seed, and then it's like made into a batter and then deep fried. It's like crunchy, delicious Yum. snacks. You had me at fried. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm like I'm all about the fried <laughs> and the salty and the savory. And the so that actually has worked pretty well with my Gruner. Mm. Um, well, and talk about let's it. talk about your Gruner. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you poured a little for us, so I'm going to give it a taste. Yeah, please do. Um, so this is under your Ottavino label. Yeah. And it comes from another vineyard in the Santa Cruz Mountains, south of where we are right now. Tell us about this. Yeah, so I, um, you know, I think my reputation, my career so far has been sort of built around Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And... Uh, I've been making wine for a good amount of time at this point in my career, and I never wanted to own a label. You know, I just, I've seen the amount of work it takes to sell wine. And I knew that when I was in school. I was like, I want to go make wine. Selling wine is fun a little bit, but it's really difficult, and you have to be good at it, and you have to hustle. And I just was like, I think I'm I'm better off. I'm better suited to make other folks' wines. Um, and I finally kind of had like the, I don't know, the ego, the hubris to be like, oh, maybe it'd be really fun to do something creative and have like a teeny tiny little thing. And so, uh, yeah, so after 15 years, I kind of caved and I have this teeny tiny label um, making like 100 cases. Um, I love Gruner. This is really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's delicious. Thank you. Um, I have loved Gruner from Austria for years and years and years. It's definitely a go-to white wine in our house. I love high acid whites. My husband Mm -hmm. does too. We happen to have really close friends in Austria who lived here in the Bay Area for a while and have since moved back. So I've been privileged to go there and taste. And nice. um, when I was thinking about things I want to do, if I want to make for my own label, I didn't necessarily want to do Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. Not to say I never would, but like, 
it seemed like this is a creative outlet. Like, let me learn about something else. Have I ever made Gruner Vetliner before? No. Have I drank a lot? Yes. So that how works. do I, yeah. And like, is this, is this different in California than it is in the Vacao or Comtal? Yeah. I think this tastes different. I think you can taste that it's Gruner Vetliner. I think there's the kind of spicy and a little bit of that like stone fruit thing going on. Um, kind of like an herba- herbaceousness. But yes. I do think it's different. And like, okay, they're planted in different soils. So there's all this sort of like, all this like WSCT diploma stuff is like going through my head a little <laughs> bit. And all this winemaking stuff is going through my head a little mm-hmm. bit. Like structurally, like what, you know, what do their acids look like at harvest versus like their sugars and flavors? And then what does it look like here? And, you know, what do they do for vinification? Because I know I love those wines. So what are they doing like for, you know, is all whole cluster press? Do they do any sort of fining? Are they, you know, in stainless steel? Do they do any oak? Like, I want context for the stuff that I like to drink. Right. Right. And then maybe not do it exactly the same here, but just sort of creatively think of what are my options, right? Mm -hmm. And Um, what does this area bring to it? What does this area bring to it? Can you grow good Gruner in California? And I think the answer is I think you can. Um, I don't think you should have expectation that it's Valkyrie or Comtel. I think it's its own animal, but I think Mm -hmm. it makes beautiful wine. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't it? California, we can grow pretty much everything and we can do it well. It's a California Gruner. It's a California Gruner. So that was the fun of doing this is just like this exploration for me on a creative side and kind of on an analytical side to kind of, and now we planted it here at Neely. So I get to make two this coming year and then I get to synthesize a little bit more about what, what is California Gruner, right? (laughs) Because now Mm -hmm. I get to make mine and I get to make theirs and. And yours are great. um, Your grapes are from. Alfaro family vineyards. So down a little further South in uh, the Santa Cruz mountains. So yeah, it's, it's all for. Again, it's back to my nerddom. <laughs> and tell our listeners what Odovino means. Ah, yeah. So um, Odovino is the name of my uh, consulting business for winemaking um, and also the label for my wine. And it is the Italian word for the piccolo, which was my main instrument um, before I sort of left the music world. Um, and obviously the piccolo is a tiny flute and I work with tiny lots of wine for tiny wineries. So that's the connection. And tiny but complicated. Yes, tiny but complicated. Playing the piccolo. Was, <laughs> I read because I was like, piccolo? What do I know about the piccolo? Nothing. And I read about it and it's like, and one of the, like when you Google piccolo, like is, is one of the things was, is playing piccolo harder than flute? <laughs> oh, I love that you Googled it. <laughs> and the answer is yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, it's a little bit, uh, we get really can get into music nerd speak, but like the embouchure, like kind of the way you form your mouth is a bit different than, than flute. Yeah. What drew you to these instruments? I I wish I had like a really great backstory, but literally came home, fifth grade band, here's the list of instruments, mom. I don't know what any of these things are. My mom was like, play the flute or the clarinet. And I was like, cool. Thank God I didn't pick the clarinet because I was awful at it in college. (laughs) (laughs) Part of the music ed degree is you have to take every instrument. Oh. um, Like a course in it. So my clarinet semester was a rough one. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, I picked the flute because my mom just was like, the flute's beautiful. Pick the flute. And then within that, um, I had a rivalry with a really close girlfriend because we were just always like kind of like the top two, the top two. And I think our band director got really sick of that. (laughs) <laughs> and so he was like, I need someone to play the piccolo. And I was like, great, I'll do it. And then it turned out I was actually like pretty good at it. Um, and that kind of kept me and my, my girlfriend also majored in music, same program, like a year after me. And it, we just laugh about it now because we're like, oh my God, we were so ridiculous because we were always <laughs> like trying to like vie for number one. And like, this is like, this instrument is what separated the two of us and like kept our friendship intact. <laughs> Did you ever go to band camp? 
Yes, I did. <laughs> one time, at what, band one camp? time at band camp. Um, that never gets old. I, I we can't put a, an E rating on your uh, podcast, but my husband's got a couple of good jokes about playing the flute. And uh, yeah, I mean, I did go to band camp. I met my husband in band. So now I'm gonna out him. Oh, I met him in marching band. Oh, what did he play? He played the trumpet. Cool. And mind you, he was an engineering major, so I think that makes him a nerd. <laughs> Whereas I got my degrees in music, so that just clearly makes me a Renaissance woman. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now we had the goofy uniforms, like the plumes on our head, the whole the whole oh, bit. Fun. And I was kind of queen of the geeks. I was one of the three drum majors when I was a senior, so like I was like leader. I mean, we were That's awesome. We were cool geeks. It was yes, cool. It's it was great good. people. Good for you. <laughs> still lifelong friends, actually, from that. So I have. No regrets about being, uh, uh, yeah, being a music nerd. Yeah. So is there a difference in the way you make wines for your label versus Neely? Um, you know, maybe a little bit. Um, should we try some Neely? We should try some Neely. Dump, dump out what you got going on over there. And I'm going to pass this to you so you don't have the Great. sound. Um, Actually, I'm going to hold it up to the mic so people can hear. Oh, I'm well, pouring just a little bit of... The Neely Chardonnay, and this is the Home Block. Yeah, this is 2018 Home Block. You know, I think the big difference with these two wines, my wine is stainless steel fermented. This is a barrel fermented Chardonnay. Um, so that, right off the bat, is very different. Um, Neely wines have evolved over time. Um, and let's talk a little bit about the background, because some of our listeners may have been familiar and fans of the Varner label. Yeah, so um, Bob Varner was the, what Lucy loves to call the first generation winemaker of the property. So he and his brother um, planted the Chardonnay back in the early 80s and were um, making wine from the property. Uh, and then after the Neelys purchased the property, the Pinot Noir got planted. And uh, so they, Bob Varner was making both the Neely wines and the Varner wines. And most of the Chardonnays were under the Varner label. The Pinot Noirs were under uh, the Neely label with a little teeny crossover. Um, and when Bob retired in 2015, that's when I was introduced to the Neelys. I was um, the custom crush winemaker in San Francisco at Roar uh, when they were still in the city. Uh, Bob knew the Roar folks and made the introduction. And so uh, we made that wine for one year off the property um, while they were trying to figure out what was going on. I was pregnant with my second kid. Mm. So when I met Kirk and Holly, I, uh, sorry, uh, Kirk Neely and Holly Myers, his wife, um, I was like my stomach like out to, you know, <laughs> kingdom come. And they were just gracious every time they would come in and taste wine with us. And, and then somewhere at the end of that year, Roar told me that they were building a winery and they were leaving San Francisco and I've like panicked because here I am like uber pregnant, like mom of soon to be two kids. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, where will I get a job? And they said, well, you can just go ask any of your current clients if they want to stay with you. That's fine. Um, and so, uh, Waits Mast, who had been working with for several years at that point stayed with me and I said to the Neelys, you looking for a winemaker? And they go, we actually are. Let's chat. And I go, well, I'm out to here. And they said, why don't you have the baby first and then we'll talk. <laughs> Good idea. And, and literally the first meeting I had, the first time I came to Spring Ridge, the first time I came on property, they're like, bring the baby with you. Aww. I didn't know them at the time that well. And so I was like, I'm going to bring my baby to a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I did hand him off to my husband in a parking lot of uh, this local shopping mall. In the bucket thing. Totally, right in the, in the little seat, carrier. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then he got hungry. So at the end of my meeting, my husband met me at the bottom of the driveway here. <laughs> 
for a like breastfeeding handoff. <laughs> and oh, Kirk man. Neely comes down in his truck to like get the mail. And he's like, hi. And he what? introduced himself to my husband and he met the baby. And he was like, I'll let you go feed the baby. And I was like, this is, this is my meeting. This is my meeting. But this is exactly why I'm working with the folks that I'm working with, you know, between the Neelys and Brian and Jennifer Waste Mast yeah. and my, my other client. You know, they're all people who understand that if you go – if you have me as a winemaker, I might call you and be like, my kid's sick today. And like, I'll, I'll, you know, let's. Well, and Dr. I, Neely could probably help. Yeah, that. well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but yeah, you know, like I, we, I'm going to juggle this and they, un- they understand all of that. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't phase anybody. My one client doesn't have kids and he has been out to dinner with me and my children and, and the chaos that comes with a five and a nine year old at a, at a fancy dinner. Right. Um, yeah. So it's been, it's been really lovely to, you know, end up working with the Neelys, um, for this amount of time and then sort of be here through this property transition because now Lucy, um, their daughter is essentially running the business on a day-to-day basis. And so I've been working with her for the last three years, which has been just like a breath of fresh air. She's an amazing person who's just all heart, you know, and like for the, for people and for the land, you know, she's just good to the core. And when you have somebody like that, who's trying to drive, you know, the whole land, the whole winery, like understand, you know, how do we do this the best way for the people and the place? Like that's the kind of person you want to work with, right? So I love working with Lewis. She sounds great. She's amazing. Yeah. And it's just, it's been this really wonderful transition here. And now we have the new blocks coming online. So that's kind of a fun new phase. And it's, that's sort of a different winemaking, you Mm -hmm. know, because nothing down here is oaked. Sure. Well, and prior to these blocks, you've had three blocks, correct? So four? there's six blocks six, up top. Okay. There's three Chardonnay blocks, That's and what I was thinking, um, there are three Pinot Noir blocks. Um, this Chard is really good. Oh, oh how you. would you describe it for our oh listeners? My it's I'm really. Sorry. I guess I'll actually taste it then. Right? Yeah, it's delicious. It's so well balanced. It's lovely. Thank you. Um, so this is the home block Chardonnay, which is the highest elevation. It's literally outside uh, Kirk and Holly's home. <laughs> we have very prosaic names around here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's barrel fermented. This tends to be the richest, most tropical. I always get sort of like grilled pineapple, like a little bit of like lean stone fruit. Um, And it's really interesting because I feel like people always describe Chardonnay as very neutral. And I don't think Santa Cruz Mountains in particular is very neutral at all. Mm. You know, it's very aromatic, the wines down here. Not just our property, but but like, you mm -hmm. know, if you taste, taste like go taste a Fogarty or a Reese or, Mm. you know, you taste any of these folks' wines. It's like, this is, these are very... um, expressive uh of the fruit and then you know for us the barrel program is uh, a re- pretty minimal one the, this has no new oak on it um intentionally because you know I don't, i'm not trying to mask the fruit of this wine mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of smoky toasty oak so the kind of oak that we use is a little bit more kind of the cedar it's more structural it's a little bit sandalwood it might be spice but it's like always a layer that's under the wine so when we use new oak it's a very small amount. Mm-hmm. What stands out for me is the purity of the fruit in here. I mean, that just really shines. Oh, thank and you. And then the acid levels are fantastic. Yeah, this is a this is a pretty high acid site. And in Santa Cruz Mountains in general, I think that's actually a benchmark of like Chardonnay here is just the, the really mouth-watering zippy acid. And for other places, if you want to make wine with this sort of natural acidity in it, you're going to pick it very lean. And then you won't have that kind of real, like, intense core of fruit. So this, that to me is what's so special about this region is is just how Chardonnay expresses itself structurally and aromatically together. Mm-hmm. Are you facing any challenges this year with the drought and, you know, I don't even want to talk about fires, but you haven't had oh any locally, but um, knock, knock on, on wood. wood, knock on everything. 
But yeah, is it um, has anything changed in the vineyard for you guys with this hot, dry year we're having? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can definitely. I mean, we have forty-year-old uh, Chardonnay vines. Two blocks are unrooted. Un- um, oh wow! Yeah. What does yeah. that mean? So they're not grafted onto a more resilient oh, rootstock. Gotcha. Um, so in some ways, they're very established, and in another way, like that's a little bit more disease prone, and uh, the drought um, will take more of an impact on on those vines. I think not only in this site here, but through several other regions, we're seeing some things this year that we haven't seen in the past. We're seeing some sort of like stunted shoots, like so they're not quite tall enough. They don't really reach those catch wires, mm-hmm. um, which means we have to st- go out there and drop that fruit because it's never going to ripen mm. um, or it's going to sunburn. Oh, um, So the yields are going to be down this year. It's not every vineyard, but mm-hmm. there's definitely a big pattern to it, and a lot of us are talking about that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's not been like hot, right? But it's been like warm mm-hmm. and like repeatedly very warm and really warm from like 4 to 6 p.m. So um, it's really stressing the vines out. We don't obviously don't have a lot of water. We didn't get a lot of rain. Um, we're fed by a natural spring here. That's lucky. I know, but even that's running kind of on the low side this mm-hmm. year. Um, but we are luckier than folks who maybe have a well or just a yes. retention pond mm-hmm. because they're dry already. Right. Um, so yeah, so it's an interesting thing. Like we, a lot of times people will talk about dry farming, which can work in certain sites. Um, but I think probably maybe the more like honest approach is, um, what we call deficit irrigation, which is like the idea of putting a little bit of water on so you don't let the plant die, but Mm -hmm. not enough to inflate the size of the grapes. Um, and so a lot of people were doing, uh, irrigation, before we even got into flowering. So when we're just literally taking care of vine health, trying to get that healthy water on for the plant to survive, so that by the time we got to this point of the year where we're at fruit set, getting through verasion, and really coming towards harvest that we're not dumping water on now. Also knowing that we wouldn't have water to dump on now. So I think it's definitely a stressful year. It'll probably be an earlier harvest in a lot of spots. And, you know, we'll just pray that we don't, get any lightning strikes or you know because this is this is becoming our new normal i know right you have to figure out how to work around these conditions yeah and it's been really interesting watching lucy and our crew kind of try to figure out what are the fire mitigation measures that's what i was going to ask how are you preparing for fires so much tree trimming so much mowing um and really just trying to uh, reduce the fuel load a lot of fuel load reduction uh it's it's really interesting there's you can't even buy like a, a tank to store your water if you have a water source at this point. Like it's that it's that kind of like mad rush because we also have supply chain issues. I know the I was world. gonna say you add to that the you COVID supply chain yeah, stuff. Yeah, you can't get anything that you need. So Eesh. it's sort of uh we're gonna cross our fingers, but you know, I think we'll be on the earlier side. Um, last year was a fairly ar- early harvest. It was already leaning that way. We went a little earlier because of fire to get things off. I think we'll probably be somewhere in the same zone. So I don't know, whatever this, I, we keep joking, like the new normal, like there is no new normal. Right. You know? It's just old like, normal now. I it's know. Like <laughs> yeah, or uh, old abnormal. I yeah, old abnormal. <laughs> I guess you just have to try to anticipate the best you can, be as prepared as you can, and just be super flexible depending on what happens. Yeah, I mean, in another way, it's like some of this heat is driving us to, uh, you know, in terms of fire season, some of the heat is really changing like acid chemistry. Mm-hmm. So it is pushing us to pick a little earlier. And in that vein, I think people will still actually be really excited because that means your your wine's actually going to be lower alcohol, 
right? Oh, I'm all over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's some stuff in there that's Mm -hmm. like not the worst thing that could ever happen. And then yeah, and then hopefully that gets us ahead of like real fire season. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think sometimes the low yield years end up being really special. Amazing, like 15, which was the like culmination of the crazy droughts. You know, we had like. Pinot Noir that looked like currants. It was so teeny tiny, but the intensity of those wines is amazing. Mm, yeah. yeah. Speaking of Pinot, yeah. I think you have a Pinot for us. Yeah, Pinot. The Chardonnay yeah, is so lovely. I know. It's I shame to dump it. I always feel badly dumping wine. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that's beautiful. The color is so light. Yeah. So I thought, you know, if I'm gonna, if we're gonna taste, we should taste uh, three different labels that I make, right? So Great. the Gruner, oh, so this one is the Gruner's mine. The uh, Chardonnay is the Neely Home Block, 2018, and this is a Waits Mast Pinot Noir from um, just outside of Anderson Valley. This is actually even closer to the coast. Um, oh. This is the 2017 Oppenlander uh, Pinot. Yeah, I think some California Pinots have become so dark in color, mm-hmm. and this is just super sheer in a way. Yeah, I mean, for me, that we were joking about this. I was talking to uh, Brian Master earlier. Like we, we like kind of that pale Pinot. It it sort of gives you a visual mm-hmm. intro to what you're gonna taste. Yes, and I'm so I'm like delighted. It's so good. Sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but I'm like, oh my Thank gosh, you. the aromatics are so just nice. beautiful. I I get beautiful floral notes out really of this. Really elegant. Yeah, it's a it's a really special region. Um, I feel very privileged to work up there too. You know, like it's like. Again, I'm, I have this real gratitude for not only the kind of people that I work with, you know, because this, really, this, hus- this is a husband and wife uh, run brand. They it have is. day jobs. We're, we're a microwinery, like 500 to 700 cases a year. Mm. So it's just the three of us. It's the husband and wife and me. And then, you know, Neely, same thing, small family winery, you know, big piece of land, little, little bit of grapes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, working with the right people is great, but then working with like great fruit sources, right? And so the marriage of those two things together is a is a rarer one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel very privileged to work the Anderson Valley and surrounding communities. An amazing community of winemakers. It's very very open. It's it's what you kind of wish every region would be like. The camaraderie. Um, I was actually just at an internal tasting last week, and the kind of information sharing, uh, honest criticism and feedback that people will give you if I'm not up there to sample a vineyard my buddy will be like hey like do you if you need me to run out to something like you know the world was on fire last year he was like hey do you need me to sample anything up here you know I can I mean he knows he knows our wines Mm -hmm. and I trust his palate but I know he'll just run me some quick chemistry and give me so I have an idea like instead of driving six hours in the day and find out that we're nowhere near harvest, like to tell me, hey, we're at 21 bricks, cool. Like, yes. I don't need to look at that till next week. That's, That's fantastic. Friend. That kind of um, support for one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, small wineries are like that up there. Big wineries are like that, mm-hmm. you know? That's so great. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's nice. These are fun wines to make. Absolutely. When you work with a boutique winery or the, like these husband and wife owners, do you, is it a conversation about what kind of wines they want to make? Or that they want to have their label, their name on, like like oh I really like a uh, an oaky Chardonnay, or I I want a stainless Chardonnay. You know, like do they come to you and say this is what I want, or do you come to them and say this is what I think your vineyard would be really great at producing? Um, you know, I would say it's the it's the first. It's like this is so Waits Mass was an established brand when I took it on. So I joined them in 2013. Um, they were. They were making wine for five years at that point, six years. Um, so, you know, I was walking into a known quantity, right? Mm-hmm. That was, John Bonnet had already written about them. 
you know, so it's like. And John Bonet was the wine writer, writer critic at the San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, and actually he wrote about uh, Neely in both the same book, the New California oh, book. Oh, great. They're yes. Actually both, they're actually both yeah. He wrote a, a fairly groundbreaking book called The New California Wine several mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. I mean, I was not the winemaker at the time, but I'll take it. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sure. but it's, you know, it's <laughs> that's yours. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great because it was like this. The, they definitely started um, with a this is the kind of wine that we like. We are in love with this place already. Um, that was like kind of where they used to go when they were dating. Um, and so they had a very clear vision of what kind of wine they wanted to make. And so when they decided to make it a commercial winery, like they were seeking out certain fruit sources, but not other fruit sources. Um, winemaker, definitely, they tasted wines together. And so when I came on board, it was like, let me taste your wines. What, what do you like about this? What would you want to change about this? You know, let's have that conversation. The three of us happen to have very similar palettes about California Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. That's a blessing. Again, like longest term client, you know, I keep them in the loop. It's like, mm-hmm. hey guys, this looks like this. This is happening over here. They come into the winery. They see things. They they want to be there, touch, see, smell their mm-hmm. wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and up at their vineyards too. But you um, don't doubt yourself. I don't in, doubt myself in your leadership all about, in the, yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, Which is great. And I think we're getting there with Neely too because it's like, it's been, this will be the sixth year we're together and it's that constant conversation of like, hey, this is what climate change is doing. This is what this is happening with this. This is what happens as the vineyard's aging. This is how we're streamlining this process. This is how it's translating across. And always being really respectful of like, Holly loves home block. So when I came on, I felt like it was very rich. People laugh at me for saying this on a podcast. But, and I was like, oh my God, it's so rich. I mean, it's rich within, within our style, which is not that, not that big. But I was like, I wanted to restrain it a little bit. But like, restraining it to the point where I love it and she wouldn't love it. That's not the right move. Right. You know? no. So it's like there's site expression. You know, we're always trying to make these site expressive wines, but there's always a range of what that could be, you mm-hmm. know? And I think trying to be really respectful for like, this is where they live. Mm-hmm. They have been with these vines, like almost as long as I've been alive, you mm-hmm. know? So it's like, that's really important to be respectful of, you know, what changes are we making and being really thoughtful of them and well, like thoughtful of how, what their perception of it. Cause their names on the bottle ultimately like mine is too, you uh-huh. know, mm-hmm. but really trying to have that dialogue. Well, in each case with these three wines we've tasted, you've done a gorgeous job. These are beautiful wines. Thank you. I mean, they're, you really taste the fruit and there's, you know, there's nothing cloying about them at all. They're just lovely, lovely wines. Well thank done. You. Thank you. Thank you. So I have to ask you, what do you do when you're, I know you've got the two kids, but what do you guys do for fun? Are you like, do you have time for like recreational pursuits or is that like. Do we have time for fun? I schedule my fun. Is it napping? (laughs) Is that your fun? (laughs) Ask my kids what I want for Christmas. What is it like a big nap? They will straight up be like, yeah, they'll be like, mom wants to sleep. (laughs) Although now I feel like now that my five-year-old's getting a little bit bigger, I'm like, oh, you know. Now mom wants a little bit of a cone of silence. Um, now, we kind of, we uh, we definitely are doing a little bit more of the staycation thing, you know, mm-hmm. this last year. But what's been really nice is um, I get my cone of silence when I go up to like Anderson Valley and check vineyards or when I go down to Santa Rita Hills and I stay there, right? Right. But this year, my husband was like, we're coming with you. And I was like, you're, but, but? what? <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're invading my... 
I know, know which I felt like weird alone. and territorial about initially. And I got to tell you, it was the biggest surprise. My kids do not mind being in like five hot vineyards a single day. They don't. Aww, that's they're great. into it. They oh, like great. coming down here. My mm-hmm. kids come down here. Mm-hmm. They're always welcome here, which is lovely. They walk with me. Um, you know, they'll taste with me before harvest and stuff like that. The totally are into it we went to anderson valley last summer we hung out with another one of my winemaker buddies whose daughter's like a similar age my kids like went down to the river and we swam and they were just like in heaven and that's so awesome. yeah i think for us it's travel like travel mm-hmm. and you know food and wine or the things and you know hopefully international travel is going to be back on our radar in the next year maybe 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 um but those are usually like our big um you know, work, both of us work hard, work crazy hours, mm-hmm. but to take those moments and show the kids these different places and different cultures and different food and kind of be more adventurous. Oh, I love that. Giving that exposure is great. Yeah. Well, and you did mention too, playing music with your daughter, your nine-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that I, not that I practice so much these days, but, um, she's playing piano and she's getting better. And she's at the point where you know, I'm not, I'm not a total distraction to her if I play along with her. So she's, she's toying around the idea that maybe we'll play a little duet together when we, uh, when we get to, uh, her next recital. Love it. Yeah. Love it. That's fantastic. Well, we know you have a super busy life, super busy schedule, and it's been such a pleasure getting to know you and tasting some of your wines together. And, um, we're so glad you took the time to talk to us today. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you guys so much for coming down and for asking me to do this. It was oh, so I loved it. Loved it so much. I feel like I should ask you to play us out because I you did bring the piccolo and I'm oh my so God. excited to see like, it. It's that, it's that moment. It's that moment. You might have to edit it though. Yeah, sure, sure. All right. I'm gonna, you're gonna give me a second here. Let's see. Okay. I'm, I'm seated in front of a microphone and also it's a piccolo. instrument and like I don't know and what did you just play us uh it was a little bit of uh the Lieberman piccolo concerto you really do have to edit the end of it though (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't I I couldn't tell that I needed to but if you say so but I love that (laughs) that was a little bit of magic here that's a first for sip sip hooray exactly Well, we are just delighted to have been able to spend some time with you and drink your delicious wines. Thanks for sharing them. Thanks for sharing your story and your your heart and your passion. I just loved it all. It, it, it really just, you know, emanates from you. Mm-hmm. It's just really fantastic. And yeah, I, this Pinot, for example, to me, it's, it's like gossamer. It's just... Ooh. Wow. Beautiful. Way to throw down the great vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> that, I don't know why, but that I've never used that word to describe a wine before. But it's just... I'm going to steal that. Nice. That's going to be the tasting note at some okay. point. <laughs> okay. I'm happy to contribute. Well, thanks again. Cheers. Yes. And sip, sip, ching, hooray. Ching. Yes. Cheers. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for our podcast today. Thank you for listening to Sip, Sip, Hooray. We hope if you enjoyed the show that you'll share it with your friends, your family. Spread the word about the Sip, Sip, Hooray podcast. 
And you can do that by, one, going to our website, sipsiphooraypodcast.com. There you'll see all the different podcast platforms we are on. And go to your favorite one and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode when it drops. And be sure to follow us on social media. We are at Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Hooray the number one, on Twitter. Be sure to tag us with any photos, if you've tried any of these wines or been to the wineries, we'd love to hear from you. That's right. We want you in the Sip Sip Hooray family, so do stay in touch with us. And that's going to do it for us, Mary. It's time to go out and eat, drink, and be merry. Absolutely. We're going to pop the cork and raise a glass. <laughs> Cheers to you, Mary Orland. Cheers to you, Mary Babbitt. Sip Sip Hooray. Sip Sip Hooray. Sip, sip, hooray.